Turn your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians. We'll begin reading in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll read on down through verse 7. So yes, I mean, it, it, we've made it finally to the last chapter of Philippians. And so if you're wondering what we're going to do after Philippians, uh, Lord willing, whenever that is, I'm hoping it'll take us right up to uh, Advent. We'll be looking at the book of Ruth as well. So if you'd like to work ahead, uh, go ahead. And as I told our people on Wednesday, you know, if you like to work ahead, you get extra credit. So not from me. I don't know from whom, but from someone. Uh, So Ruth is where we'll be once we finish Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. God's word says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let us, let us pray together. Holy Father, we come before you now. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit to better understand your word, to see how we are to continue to fight for joy in the midst of this sinful and divided and broken world that we live in today. Lord, of how we are to come to you with our anxieties, how we are to Cast those cares at your feet. And that you call us to do that. You call us to do it with thankfulness in our hearts so that we may rejoice always. Lord God, I ask that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word so that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, as I was preparing uh, for uh, this sermon here from Philippians 4, I did a very academic and technical uh, research. I opened up my web browser and I typed into Google, uh, anxiety disorders. So yes, I know that's very technical and very academic, uh, just searching on Google. But as I did so, I saw that there are a number of different ways that doctors and psychologists classify anxiety disorders. So some of the major ones that came up on a popular medical website was, uh, I'll, I'll read them out for you. Generalized anxiety disorders, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, phobias, agoraphobia, separation anxiety, selective mutism, which is when kids are afraid to speak in public, and medication-induced anxiety disorders. So that's a number of different ways that certain disorders have been broken up 
and, and signified and, and uh, diagnosed by the world. And I just want to be clear right now that if you do struggle with anxiety, what, what we're going to do today is, is no way are we making light of that struggle with anxiety. I, I think often, uh, too often the church has failed those who struggle genuinely with these issues. But so has the world. And friends, Christianity, biblical Christianity, has a problem for these disorders, for these problems, these issues that we face in our daily life. And it's not, uh, it's not making fun of people who struggle with these issues. It's not simply telling them, oh, if you just have more faith, you wouldn't struggle. As I looked at many of these disorders uh, that these doctors and psychologists had classified, and they do a good job defining what they are uh, to a point, they explain the symptoms, but then they jump straight from the symptoms to the treatment. So breathing exercises, deep tissue massages, I think we can all use more of those, if I'm being honest, uh, or medications, diet, and sleep. But do you see the problem with that? Jumping immediately from symptoms to treatment. What, what those treatments fail to do is they... They fail to answer really the, the ultimate questions of why is this world broken? Why do I feel this way? Why is there sin in the world? Is there sin in the world? Is there a God? Is there eternity? What is sin? How does sin affect my physical and my spiritual life? And, and what many of these cures and some of these self-help books and teachers do is they don't answer those questions. They just jump right to these tips. But the Bible does answer these questions, friends. And we see that in, in chapter 4, Paul is dealing with, with a number of problems in the church at Philippi. These problems include disunity and disagreement, a, a lack of joy and rejoicing, anxiety, mindset, unearthly desires. And Paul doesn't just say, stop it, have more faith. No, he, he lovingly confronts these issues and he provides them with gospel-centered solutions. He's not just giving them tips on to be a better you. No, the solution to these problems that the church is facing is ultimately found in the gospel. Found in the good news about Jesus Christ and holding on to the hope that we have because Christ is alive. Faithfully pressing on and truly believing and seeing how the gospel uh, applies to our disagreements, applies to our lack of joy, our, our, our struggles with anxiety. As we've seen, as we've worked through the book of Philippians over the last couple months, we've seen that one of the major themes is joy, right? I mean, you can't read Philippians without coming across joy or rejoicing. But in particular, one of the major themes is not just joy for joy's sake, it's joy in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. So what we're going to see in these verses of, of Philippians 4 is we're going to see a number of ways we lose our joy. We're going to see the, the problems that, that Paul is going to, to deal with, with division and, and, uh, and anxiety and, and a lack of joy. And we're going to see how we fight those problems and how the ultimate solution is found in these gospel-centered applications that Paul is going to give here. So the problem, we're going to see the problems, and then he's going to give the solutions for how we fight for joy. 
But before we, we dive in, don't, don't forget what Paul has been unpacking in the book of Philippians. How he has called them, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, to press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. How Paul called them to boast in the cross and to imitate Christ's humility. How to stand firm. And how do we do that? How do we stand firm in the world in which we live? Not by having our minds set on earthly things. Not by glorying in our shame or not by making our belly our God, not by, not by doing those things, but by standing firm in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Paul is going to apply those things that we unpacked over the last couple of weeks to these specific situations. These situations that cause us to lose our joy in Christ. So as we come to verses 2 and 3, we're going to see that the first problem that Paul is going to address here, or for ourselves today, the first way we lose our joy in Christ is by allowing disunity in the church. So the first way we lose our joy in Christ is by allowing disunity in the church. And as, we, as we've seen in Philippians, Paul has already been hinting at the importance of unity throughout Philippians. And here, now he's going to drill down and he's going to address a specific situation between these two sisters. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So Paul addresses them and he calls them to agree in the Lord. As I was reading this text this week, I was thinking, how would you like to be reminded for all eternity of one of your disagreements in Scripture? How would you like to be these two ladies for all eternity being reminded, oh yes, I was Yodia and I was Syntyche, and yet we were not agreeing. Well, it seems like some of you might want to be these types. I'm just joking. But maybe, maybe there's some seriousness there. Or just some joy with you guys. But what was the problem? What was their problem here? We're not given specific details about what they were disagreeing with. What they were disagreeing over. Really, the only detail we have here is what? They were not of the same mind. In other words, they're, they're fighting. They're, they're divided. Division and disunity in the church. That's nothing new. Why? Because we're sinners. And often we're prideful. We don't know much about these two women here other than the fact that they labored side by side with Paul and the gospel. We do know that the church at Philippi, if you read Acts 16, women played an incredibly important role in starting the church, such as Lydia and other women who were mentioned here. But we don't know much about what's happening here. And there's likely, the, the likely reason for that is because everybody in the church knew the differences. Everybody in the church knew the details because the church knew all about this conflict. And yet look at what Paul is doing here. He's direct, but he's also loving. So friends, how can we as believers, how can we lose our joy in the Lord? Well, one way we lose our joy is by being divided, by Division, allowing division in the church, not seeking unity and having a, a, a humility to admit our sin and our need for repentance and, and our need for forgiveness. And friend, I, I just want to ask you, do you strive for unity 
Or do you strive for disunity in the church? Do you seek to unite the church? Or do you seek to divide it? I think every single one of us sitting in here this morning would say, of course we seek to unite it. Why would we not? Most of us, without a doubt, would immediately answer, we strive for unity. But do you really? How often do we speak too quickly without knowing the full details? How often do we speak too quickly only to offend another brother or sister in the Lord? Then we dismiss it as, well, I'm sorry you're offended. I was just speaking the truth. When in reality, what does that have to do with anything? That's not repentance. That's not asking for forgiveness. All that statement is, is just allowing you to continue in your sinful attitude. You know, friends, it's scary to be an unforgiving person. But it's just as scary to think you don't need forgiveness. Let's not be a people like that. Let's be a church that's marked by grace. Let's be a church that's marked by humility to admit our wrongs and ask our forgiveness. You know, so often churches can turn inward and they can fight against each other, just like we see here with, with, with the church at Philippi. And, and do, do we want to be attractive to the world? Well, let's be loving and let's be caring for each other. Has the gospel taken root in your life? Then seek to be gracious. May everything we do and say as a church be marked by grace. Yes, we speak the truth in love. Truth dripping with grace. Why do we often fail to do that? It's often we're way too prideful to acknowledge our wrong, to acknowledge our sin. But friends, that's not honoring to God. So, so the problem here is that they're, they're divided. They're, they're not united. And what's the solution that Paul offers to this church, to these two sisters? Look, look at how he addresses them. Twice he says, I entreat, and I entreat. You see that? He repeats himself. Some of your translations might say, I exhort or I beg, I urge to do what? What does he ask them to do? Agree in the Lord. So agree in the Lord. Now, uh, this is literally have the same mind in the Lord. This phrase occurred back in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse, verse 2, where, where Paul is saying there, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And and what mind is Paul talking of there in chapter 2? In in verse 4, he speaks of the, in chapter 2, verse 4, he speaks of the mind of Christ. Uh, Verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, he speaks of the mind of Christ. And then he goes on and describes Christ's humility, leaving the glories of heaven to die on the cross for our salvation. In other words, Christ's humility on the cross is meant to be a model for us to follow in our relationships. If Christ, the the, the Lord of the universe, the eternal Son of God, could humble Himself even to the horrific death on a cross for sinners, then why can't we have that same humble mind among ourselves? To be humble, to be gracious, to be forgiving. Parents, you want to model a, a, a godly home for your family Model forgiveness. Model a gracious speech to your spouse and to your, your children. I'll be honest, yesterday, 
I wasn't too happy with the way that the Florida Gators were playing in the first half. <laughs> and, and I probably wasn't the most gracious and loving towards my children when they wanted to just climb all over me when I was watching the game. But I apologized to them this morning for that sinful attitude that I had. Model that graciousness, even if it's something as silly as that. Because, friends, there's a disconnect when we can't be humble and, and we can't seek forgiveness and seek unity. In, in fact, if you, if you can't do that, then has the gospel really taken root in your life? So what's the solution to division and disunity? Well, it's this gospel-centered humility that comes from modeling the mind of Christ. Humility that's, that's rooted in the gospel. Humility that, that recognizes that you're not a sinner and you're not perfect and we need the perfect righteousness of another, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Paul goes on and he, he, he reminds them in verse 3, he, he, he reminds them, look, your names are written in the book of life. This phrase only occurs two other times in Scripture, in Revelation 3 and Revelation 20, but it's a theme that, that occurs throughout uh, other areas of, of Scripture, and it carries with it this idea of those who've been redeemed by Christ, that they have their name written and, and kept in heaven. And Paul is saying, look, your names are written in the book of life together. They're kept in heaven. So you should be working side by side in the gospel together, not disputing, not fighting each other. Have the mind of Christ among yourself. So one of the ways we lose our joy is by disunity, by fighting amongst each other. As we move on to verse 4 now, we'll see that the second way we lose our joy is simply by forgetting to rejoice in the Lord always. Forgetting to rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, I understand it's very creative, right? That's why I'm studying preaching, so I can be more creative. No, it just says what, that's just what the text says, right? We, how often we lose our joy in the Lord by, by forgetting, forgetting why we should have joy. How often do you go about your day forgetting about God, what He's done for you in Christ, and, and you lose your joy when something small or, or something big sidetracks you, and you get frustrated, you get anxious, you get angry. Paul, actually, he's giving them a command here to rejoice. See, I command you to rejoice in the Lord. He knew that they needed this command because he repeats himself. It, it seems odd almost, right? That, that, that we need this command to rejoice in the Lord. Can Christians struggle to fight for joy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the benefits that I find in reading Christian biographies of those who've gone before us is, is seeing how God used uh, people like, like, like Charles Spurgeon and Susanna Spurgeon, uh, Adoniram Judson and John Newton, and seeing how there were times in their lives when they struggled through depression, anxiety, despair, and yet they fought for joy. Adoniram Judson, at one point, he lost his wife, he lost his kids while he was serving on the missions field, and he dug his own grave thinking he was next. And yet, God brought them through those times. Or, or Charles Spurgeon, who probably one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, no matter what denomination or, 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 or background, one of the greatest preachers in all of the history of the church, he struggled mightily through depression. 
Uh, you can read a book that's written just on Spurgeon's sorrows. And yet he fought for joy through it. God brought them through. I, I love the scene in, in Pilgrim's Progress, which was a, a, an allegory written by John Bunyan, an allegory for the Christian life, where the, the main character, by the name of Christian, he falls into the slew of despond. Now, despond, despondency in Bunyan's day was, uh, was the word that we use for depression. And so Christian, he, he's stuck in that muddy mess of depression. But then the Lord sends a man by the name of help to help him out of that state. I don't know why I find that scene so encouraging, but maybe it's because we all need that reminder. That reminder to get our eyes off of the mud around us and keep our gaze upon Christ. Because when we take our eyes off the Lord, we focus on the messes around us, and guess what? We lose our joy in the Lord. So friend, don't simply gaze at the mud around you. Look to Christ and rejoice in Him. Notice that, that Paul says, rejoice where? In the Lord. Why do we rejoice in the Lord? Because He is our source of joy. The, the only reason why we have hope, why we can have eternal life, is because of Jesus dying as our substitute in our place and rising from the dead. Paul doesn't say rejoice only when things are going well. Only when your bank account grows, only when people speak well of you. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. How can he say that? I found myself asking Paul this question as, as we've gone through Philippians. How can he say this? Have you noticed who the most joyful person is in the book of Philippians? It's Paul. He's constantly talking about joy. But where is he? See in the palace? See his lazy boy? No, he's chained to Roman imperial guards. So maybe he is in the palace, but he's in prison. He's joyful though. And he's saying, he's calling them, commanding them, rejoice always. Why? Because all of life is grace. Everything we have in this life is ultimately better than hell. As Paul himself says, I count it all rubbish compared the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always rejoicing. Now that doesn't mean that we just go around with this fake smile saying everything is good and grand, right? No, I mean Paul admits he's in prison. Paul himself elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10 says he describes himself as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I love that. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Friends, you're going to face sorrow in this life. You don't need to hear that from me. You already know that. You're going to face brokenness in this life. Why? Because we live in a world that's been broken by sin. That's one of those big questions that, that the secular world cannot answer. Why is this happening? This happens because we live in a world that's been broken by sin, that's in rebellion to God. You will face trials, but know that joy in Christ runs deeper than our sorrows. As the hymn puts it, When through deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, 
and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Friends, one of the characteristics that should set us apart, set the church apart, believers apart from the world, should be our joy. So we must strive as a church, as a people, we must strive and we must fight to be a joyous people. Of all the people to be joyful in the world, Christians should be the ones. Our joy should be contagious. Because of the gospel, we have reason for hope. Because of the gospel, we have reason for joy in any and every situation. So the second way we lose our joy is simply forgetting to rejoice in the Lord. The third way we see is in verse 5. We lose our joy by having a lack of grace and gentleness. Look what Paul says. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Some of your translations might translate that word reasonableness as graciousness or gentleness or considerateness. It would seem that the best translation here is actually gentleness because of how this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Gentleness. Gentleness. Sounds so odd in our culture today, doesn't it? Who today thinks of gentleness as an honorable trait? Hopefully believers do. Instead of gentleness, we think that talking over others is admirable and courageous. Politicians yell and talk over each other and we say, oh, what courage. Friends, that's not courage, that's buffoonery. I had to look up if that was an actual word, and I think it is. <laughs> you will not be a joyful person if you lack gentleness and if you lack grace. Have you ever thought about why are Christians often so characterized as so angry? Why are we characterized as old and grumpy with frowns on our faces, mad about politics, mad about weathers, uh, weather, mad about our neighbors and our nation, the Dodgers winning the World Series? That was just me. But why is it that we're often characterized by such negative characteristics? Why is it that often some of the most ungodly character on display happens at church meetings? You would think that such a concentration of godly and sanctified people would just be an overwhelming place of gentleness and grace. I think we're failing. I'm not just saying we, but our church, not just our church, but churches in general. We're failing at this. Gentleness. Do people see you as an angry person? Or do they see you as one full of joy and gentleness and humility? Yes, there's times for courage. There's times to speak. Absolutely. We must do that. We're called to do that. But... We follow the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. So are you characterized as an angry person or as one who's full of joy and gentleness? If you're characterized as an angry person, you're probably not following after your good shepherd. It's interesting that so much of what the world sees as courage and, 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 uh, and, and uh, characteristics to be modeled is so opposite, so anti Christ. So what's the solution here? Well, look what Paul says in verse 5. The Lord is at hand. 
Meaning, what? Jesus is going to return as judge. That he's going to hold people responsible for their actions and their words. So next time you want to respond in anger, you you want to uh, say something before you think it through, remember, we're going to have to stand before the Lord who's coming back as judge. Scary. So going on now, the fourth way we lose our joy, as we'll see in verse 6, is through anxiously taking our eyes off Christ. The fourth way we lose our joy is through anxiously taking our eyes off of Jesus. Friends, we have to fight for joy in Christ by fighting against anxiety in our lives. Look with me at verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be be made known to God. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Love the imagery there. When you carry around worry and anxiety, you're trying to lift and you're trying to carry a burden that you were not meant to carry. And again, I know some of you are are more prone to anxiety. I know some of you struggle more with anxiety and and even depression than others. But, But some are more naturally prone to anxiety than others. So this is a harder battle for you to fight through. But don't give up. Don't lose hope. The Lord will see you through. Why do you think Paul is writing to them about anxiety? Why do you think the Philippians had such reason to be anxious? Well, they faced external threats, right? From the the, the empire around them growing a little bit more and more hostile each day to Christianity. They faced these internal threats that we already looked at with this disunity among these two sisters. They were concerned about Paul. They were concerned about Epaphroditus. They may have also worried about God's provision based on what Paul talks about in the rest of chapter 4. So we can surely understand the numerous reasons they had for anxiety, can't we? But what about your life? What's causing anxiety in your life? Marriage? Is it your marriage? Is it your children, your grandchildren? Is it a family crisis, a work crisis, financial crisis? Friends, anxiety will kill your joy. Because our anxiety, when it overtakes us, it it makes us function like like God is not in control and He's not loving. When uh, when we plunge so deeply into our anxiety, we, we almost kind of begin to live as if God is not sovereign and He's not good. But what's the solution? Verse 6. In everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is the solution. Cast your cares upon the Lord, because He cares for you, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 5. And how are we to do this? With thanksgiving. Because of Christ, believer, you can always find something, sometimes it's harder than others, but you can always find something to be thankful for and to be joyous over. Believer, your name is written in the book of life. So so rejoice in the Lord always. Cast your anxiety down at His feet and do so with thanksgiving. And what's the result of that? Verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Believer, fight for joy in this anxious world. Rejoice in the Lord always. No, that's not always easy. It's a fight. 
but because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, we can fight for joy. Friend, if you're here today, though, know that you can have this peace, which Paul describes as surpassing all understanding. It comes from faith in Christ. It comes from recognizing that you are a sinner, that this world is broken by sin. Know that you can have hope and that you can have joy in all circumstances because Jesus died to save you from the punishment of your sins. You trust in Him, you enter into that fight for joy. Friends, the world does not have an answer for these big questions, but the Bible does. That answer is found in the Gospel in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of sinners. So believer, live in light of the gospel. Fight for joy in Christ by seeking unity in the church. Fight for joy by rejoicing in what Christ has done. Don't forget what He has done for you. Fight for joy in being gracious and gentle and humble. Fight for joy by submitting your anxiety to the Lord through prayer with thanksgiving so that you might experience the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to take our eyes off of Christ. His immeasurable worth and have our eyes fixed upon the mud around us. To see what's going on in this world and be incredibly discouraged, even anxious over what we see. Or maybe even be anxious over what's going to happen this week in our nation. And take our eyes off of you. Lord, fill us with your spirit to fight for joy. Lord, I, I, I pray for those who, who are here in our midst who, who don't know this peace that surpasses all understanding that comes from knowing Christ. Father, work in their lives at this very moment so that they would see their need for Christ. So they would see that they're not perfect. That they can't do it on their own. But that you have provided an all-sufficient Savior in Jesus. Lord, I, I pray for those in our midst who are, are, are battling through these, these seasons of anxiety and depression. Lord, help us as a church to be able to love them through it. Help them to, to fight for joy even in the midst of darkness. And help them to know that you will see them through it. That you will send them the help they need. Help them to see that light in the midst of their sorrows. Lord, I, I pray for us as a church that we would be marked by unity. <laughs> that we would just be such a gracious community that it's contagious to one another, that it's contagious to this, this, this city and the surrounding areas that we live in. Help us to live lives marked by humility, marked by gentleness, and marked by graciousness. Father, forgive us for those areas where we have failed to do so. And in our failings, may we rejoice all the more in how Christ has succeeded for us. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.